Okay, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, we're going to continue our study this morning. You know, Zechariah is uh, an incredible book for a number of reasons. The, the prophecies are just, just staggering, that they cover so much of history. And we see God's plan from that time that Israel had returned from Babylon, right the way through the days in which we're living, up until that time that the Lord will return and establish his kingdom on earth. But uh, one of the key things we see, and we'll see it come out in this study this morning, in the book of Zechariah, is God's love and plan for his people Israel. And we've talked a lot about this over recent weeks. And I think next Sunday we might just take a, a break. I was going to do it at the end of our study of Zechariah. But I think it's fitting, and you'll see why with what we're going to go through in a minute. We're going to have a, a, just a break from Zechariah for one week. And I want to just talk about the nation of Israel. I want to talk about God's plan and purpose. And it's important because so much of the church in this country, and in fact around the world, has been taught that God has finished with Israel. Well, you'll see from what we study in a short while that that couldn't be further from the truth. Zechariah chapter 8 particularly makes it abundantly clear that God hasn't given up on his plan for Israel. God chose that nation. They were called, Abraham was called, and that through his family, God was going to bring the Messiah into the world, that through that nation, the world would be blessed. And of course, it's through Israel that we've been given the word of God. Yeah, we all sit here with, with Bibles in our own language, but it was given to the Jews. The Jews were the one who faithfully preserved and passed it down generation to generation so that you and I can have a copy of these scriptures. And I'm not just talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament is Jewish too. It was written by Jews. And there's a lot of very Jewish themes in there. And when we understand the nation of Israel and what God had done with them, through them, and so much of scripture makes sense, you know, it's been said before that the Old Testament is the account of a nation and the New Testament is the account of a person, the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was born into the nation of Israel. So next week we'll just have a, uh, it's not even really a break because it's just a continuation of the theme. And I want to just look at Romans 9, 10, and 11 next week um, because Paul asks the question about Israel. Is God finished with Israel? So we'll, we'll, we'll move into that next week. But this morning you'll see why this kind of builds very nicely to that, that study. Just a reminder of what we've seen already in the um, studies we've gone through. The first verse, few verses, it's really that exhortation in chapter 1, the first six verses, to repent, to turn back to God, to turn their hearts to God. They've come back from Babylon. They've been back in the land for 19 years at this point. And there's that admonition, don't repeat the mistakes that your father's made. And we're going to see that echoed again in chapter 7 in a moment. And then we go on in chapter 1 to these visions. Uh, some say 8, some say 10. It's kind of irrelevant. There's, however you want to count them, it's fine. But these visions that occur seemingly in one night, and they seem to lay out the entire plan, God's plan, for the nation of Israel and for the world from that point on until Jesus returns, and the kingdom is established on earth. You know, there's a lot in the church that have adopted this idea of, it's sometimes referred to as amillennialism, 
Uh, if you prefix a word with a, it means not. So an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. A muse means not to think. And the world, of course, he does its best to try and amuse us, to try and encourage us not to think. We have so much around us today to encourage us not to think. God says we should think. David says that uh, he mused while the fire burned. He thought about things of God. But a millennial, it's the idea that there won't be a literal millennium. As a period of a thousand years. It comes from the Greek word mill. It means a thousand we're familiar with our even our metric measuring system, and the ideas of mill, millimeters, and so on. It's, it's a thousandth, you know. So um, the idea is that there won't be a literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ on earth. And that's contrary to everything we read in the Bible. The idea came really from the second into the third century. People like Oregon, a historical character, started allegorizing much of Scripture. And, you know, the interesting thing, when you do a study of church history, if you ever do a study of church history, you'll find that a lot of the people that brought these ideas in were very sincere. It's very easy to look at them and be very kind of um, almost just cast aside as heretics and, and so on. Some of them were, true, but there were some that were really genuinely trying to understand Scripture. And, of course, in books like Revelation, we read that there, were, there was a time of tribulation that was coming. And during those first few centuries, the church went through a very difficult time. And some misinterpreted what they were going through as the tribulation. They thought, this must be what John was speaking about, that time of tribulation. The the problem is, and many do this today, the tribulation that is spoken of in the book of Revelation, specifically a seven-year period, it's not... It's not persecution against Christians. That's not what it is. It's a time of God's wrath being poured out on this world. And when you understand the difference between what is persecution, which is antagonism towards Christians from the world, and the tribulation the Bible speaks about, which is God's wrath being poured out on the world, they are very different things. But nevertheless, because of what the early Christians were going through, they assumed that was the case. And we come to roughly 300 AD, that kind of time frame, and Emperor Constantine legalizes Christianity. And suddenly the persecution stops. And Christians are allowed to start using the buildings that had been used by the pagans up until that point. You know, the church initially had met in homes. And of course, in places like the catacombs, the, the, the underground tombs and so on, you know, for fear of persecution. And suddenly that's all gone. And so many interpreted that as being, well, this maybe is the millennium now. This is now this period of wonderful opportunity where the church is ruling. And, of course, Constantine tried to, to fuse together the church and the state. He was not only head of the Roman Empire, but he became, as it were, head of the church as well. And that led, of course, to the Roman Catholic Church, which has always wanted to be both head of the church and head of the world from a political and religious perspective. And when you come all the way down through history and you get to the time of the Reformation, like Martin Luther and so on, and so much was done to get back to the truth of Scripture, to understand what the Bible actually said, the problem was there were many things that were left undone. And so we find things like 
eschatology. That's just the fancy word we use for the study of the last things, study of the end times. That those things weren't really gone back into, they weren't addressed, they weren't studied. And so we find that the Anglican Church, which under Henry came out of the Catholic Church, and then subsequently the Baptist and the Methodist and all these other denominations, they never really went back and looked at the whole scenario and picture of what the Bible says about the end times. And so typically they embraced what the Catholic Church had held, the Anglican Church had held, and so on, regarding end times. So they believed, much of the church today still believes, that there won't be a millennium. And it all goes back to those early centuries. It wasn't what the early church, the, the, the disciples believed. The disciples is really clear when you read scripture. They believed Jesus was returning. He was going to set up a kingdom on earth. You only got to read the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And they asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Now they were thinking of the kingdom in regard to Israel, but not just Israel, because the prophecies had said that the Messiah would establish his kingdom throughout the earth. And we've seen these prophecies already in Zechariah, particularly the first couple of chapters, these visions we see speak of God establishing, choosing again Jerusalem. And we've seen in the other minor prophets we've already studied that the Lord would set Jerusalem at the top of the nations. And we'll see more as we go through the latter parts of Zechariah in regard to those prophecies. So the Jews, the early church, believed that God really was going to establish a literal kingdom on earth. I mean, so much so that Matthew... When we get to uh, the night that Jesus was arrested, he decides, thinks, surely this is the moment. He gets his sword out. He's ready to do battle. He's thinking this is the moment that we're going to overthrow the kingdoms of the world and the Messiah is going to rule and reign. But that wasn't, of course, the plan. Jesus had to come and suffer first. He tells Peter to put his sword away. It wasn't the time. But Jesus will come back at the time of the second coming and he will establish his kingdom. He'll put down all rule, authority and power. And as we read about very clearly, explained to us in the book of Daniel, in chapter 2 particularly, in chapter 7, speaks of the reign of the Messiah being established on earth, that God will set Jesus up as his king. and Jesus will rule over the whole earth. Now, again, these visions really kind of give us a summary of all of those things. And over the last few weeks, we've been going through looking at those. Then we saw Joshua crowned as the high priest. Almost the conclusion of all of that. And it's a type, it's a picture. Joshua, the name, is the same effectively as we have of Jesus. Yehoshua in the Hebrew just means the Lord saves. Same as Jesus, Yehoshua. And so Joshua, who is a priest, is crowned. Now that, that should strike us. We looked at this last week. You know, the priesthood was from the tribe of Levi. The kingdom in Israel was from the tribe of Judah. And so it's a bizarre picture for any Jew looking at this. They'll be thinking, well, how can Joshua, who's a priest, be crowned as a king? Of course, it's a picture of Jesus, who is not only our high priest, but he's also the king of kings. We've talked before that we talk about Jesus being king. Do you know the most common titles of Jesus as king are king of Israel, king of the Jews, Those those titles occur more than any other. Yes, Jesus is the king of kings, but he's also the king of Israel. And so it's a great picture of after all of the things that are going to happen on this earth, the judgment that God is going to bring on the nations of this world, 
that the Messiah will return. He will establish his kingdom and he'll be crowned as the high priest, as the king. So that leads us into where we're going to be looking at this morning in chapter 7 and chapter 8. So let's turn there. We read, and it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius. So we're now in 516 BC, so 520 is when he Darius became king. 518 is the year the Haggai specifically nails a date for us that the temple, the foundation of the temple was laid. It concludes that 70-year period that had been spoken of, this desolations of Jerusalem for 70 years from 587 BC when Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken away by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. And that triggered a 70-year period to the day. God's always very precise in Scripture. And Haggai actually gives us the date, the 24th day of Chislu. And we find that that's the trigger. That's in the, that's in 518 B.C., Two months after that, Zechariah comes onto the scene and starts his prophecies. And now we're two years down the road from that. So it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth day now of the ninth month, even in Chislu. Now, it's interesting. These are obviously the Hebrew months, and there's an English approximation to each of these. But what we find is that each of these dates is significant for a number of reasons. And we'll, we'll talk about some of these things in a short while. And we're told that when they had sent unto the house of God, Shereza and Regamelech and their men to pray before the Lord. Now, it's translated house of God, but actually it's not the temple. That's maybe how we would think of that. We would look at that and think it's the temple. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's Bethel, which literally is the house of God. But there's also a place in Israel that I'm sure you're familiar with called Bethel. Bethel. It's, it's, the name means house of God. Bet in Hebrew means house. And obviously El, a contraction of Elohim, the name of God. So Bet's house, El, house of God. Same as Bethlehem is the house of bread. So, so they sent these men ascent to Bethel, which is just north of Jerusalem. And these two individuals that are mentioned here, Shariza and Regamelech, and their men, to pray before the Lord and to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, so notice that these men are sent with a question. And they come to the people that are there, to the priests that are ministering there, and to the prophet saying, should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? So let me just give you the, the picture. When they've been in Babylon, they were, of course, away from their land. It was a time in the sense of national mourning. And they'd had a number of feasts um, or days of fasting kind of I know that almost sounds kind of contradictory uh, but you'll see uh, at the end of the 
chapter how those things are kind of tied together. But a day set apart, maybe we should phrase it that way. They were days where they lamented what had taken place. Again, so we're told now, should I weep in the, the fifth month? This was the anniversary of when the temple and the city had been burnt by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Babylonians, in 587 BC. And so what they'd done every year, they'd remembered this date, this tragic date in their history. And so for the time they'd been in Babylon, every year they'd set aside this time in the fifth month just to fast, to go back to God and lament the situation and seek God and pray that God would change the circumstances. It's interesting that, that they seemingly have done this religiously during that time. We go on, verse 4 says, Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned, in the fifth and the seventh month. And we'll talk about this uh, as well. So we've got two now. This is not just the fifth month, which was when the temple was destroyed. The seventh month was the anniversary of when Gedaliah, who was placed by Nebuchadnezzar as governor over the land. Okay, so when Israel had taken away to Babylon... The majority of the nation, there were a few people that were left there. And Zedekiah placed Gedaliah as this individual to rule over the land. But he went very shortly after, was assassinated. And so it was another tragedy. Like tragedies on top of tragedies for the nation of Israel. And so there's two things that are being referenced now. The, the, the fast, if you like, the time of mourning in the fifth month. And then this one of Gedaliah being murdered. In the seventh, and we, so again, verse five, speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, again, as references have been done, did you at all fast unto me, even to me? Interesting question. They were no doubt upset, and they were brokenhearted at all that they'd lost. But the question that's put to them was, But why were you doing it? Were you doing it because you were seeking God? Or were you just lamenting what you'd lost? Were you coming to God and seeking God? Or were you just doing it because of self-pity? It's kind of a question that we can apply to our own lives, so often in many situations. Verse 6 goes on, And when ye did eat, and when you did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So the question is, is kind of added to, you know, so there were times of fasting, but then these led into times of feasting, these memorials that they set up. But God is saying, but, but were you doing it for me? Was it something you'd done because you were seeking me and you wanted a relationship with me? You wanted to understand why these things had happened and what God had done and why God had done it. Was that the purpose or was it just, again, just self-pity, wallowing? Verse 7 goes on, should ye not hear the words which the Lord has cried by the former prophets? And now they're going to get a bit of a history lesson. So let me just give you again, just to be very clear, 
Some of these people have been sent down from Jerusalem down to Bethel. And the question is, should we just carry on doing these fasts and things that we used to do in Babylon? That's all over now. We're back in the land. Do we need to keep doing that? And the question is, well, why did you do it in the first place? Why were you doing it? And now that this history lesson is going to be given to them, should you not hear the words which the Lord has cried by the former prophets? Think about what all the prophets have said leading up to the captivity in the first place. When Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities thereof round about her, where men inhabited the south and the plain. So it's okay, stop for a second. You're focusing on what had happened and the Babylonian captivity and the fast that you did. You know, just, just think for a second, before all that happened, what led to that? Think back to the time that everything was wonderful in the land, that you had a king in the land and you were prospering. And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment. And show mercy and compassion as every man to his brother. Okay, so maybe it's not clear immediately. You'll see as we go in, into this. The, God is saying, remind the people what I had asked of them. We, we saw this very much going through the books like Hosea and Amos. This call to the people before the captivity to execute true judgment, to show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. That was what those prophets were calling the nation to do. They were pleading with them, saying, don't be unjust, don't be corrupt. We saw then it was the leaders of the nation that were leading others into these things, and they were not showing compassion. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Well, these are all the things that God had said to them, don't do this, and they had done it. Leading up to times like King Manasseh, one of the worst kings, probably the worst king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the things that were done during his reign were just dreadful. And then we go on, verse 11, gets the context, makes it clear. But they, that's who they were speaking of, the people back then, they refused to hearken. They didn't listen to God. And pulled away the shoulder. You know, you, you know that, don't you? Most of you have seen teenagers. You know, that kind of thing. Pulled away the shoulder. And stopped their ears. That they should not hear. You see, God had sent prophets to the nation. Pleading with them to be just, be loving, be compassionate, be kind to each other. Verse 12 goes on. Yet they made their hearts as an adamant stone. Okay, you and I, that's flint to us. It's a stone that's so tough it can't really be engraved or anything else. It's just solid. And their hearts were like that. God couldn't inscribe upon them. There's a lovely twist in the sense when we look at the word statutes. We find that word occurs 21 times in the book of, or in, in Psalm 119. There's a, there's a real significance to the numbers those words occur. There's seven words in Psalm 119 that speak of the word of God. You've got statutes, judgments, testimonies, and so on. And statutes, the idea is something that is inscribed. And it's as if God inscribes things on our hearts. And that's how it should be. We should be in a relationship with the Lord such that the Lord can inscribe his statutes, his judgments and, and so on, his commandments, and inscribe them on our hearts. 
But God here is saying, you wouldn't allow me to do that. Your hearts were so set in their ways. Just like Pharaoh in Egypt. If you remember, Pharaoh hardened his heart. In fact, it says the Lord hardened his heart. Really, the way to understand that is that God just confirmed his heart in the state it was in. Pharaoh had got to that place with the children of Israel and with his relationship to to God and so on. He didn't care. And so God says, okay, well, I'm going to fix your heart in that position that it's in. Turned away from him. And here, they made the hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law. See, isn't it crazy how people so often do things to prevent them hearing God? Lest they should hear, they did it. They, They kind of knew that what they were doing was kind of putting their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 I can't hear you, God. Lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts We've mentioned that already, that phrase, the Lord of hosts, repeatedly occurs in this book. It's God of heaven's armies. Unless the Lord of hosts has sent his spirit by the former prophets. So they didn't want to hear what God had to say through his word, through the law, through the prophets. Therefore, because of that, it wasn't just because of the injustice and all the things that were going on in Israel. It was because they hardened their hearts, because they did not want to hear God. Psalm 14 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Strictly speaking, the translation adds the there is. Strictly speaking, the fool has said in his heart, no God. And I heard it explained once, and I think it's kind of a helpful analogy. It's a little bit like, you know, you're out for a meal, and the waiter comes up with the pudding menu, and you look at it, and some of you just have to imagine this because it may not happen with you. But you, know, you go, no pudding, don't want it. You're not saying, I don't believe it exists. You're just saying, I don't want it. The fool has said in his heart, no God. It's not saying God doesn't exist because everyone knows God exists. You know, even atheists pray when they're in a storm. No, it's saying, Psalm 14 says, God has said in his heart, oh, sorry, the fool has said in his heart, no God. I don't want to acknowledge God. And this is exactly, again, what they've done. Again, therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. It's because of this attitude, not just because of the the sin, but because they did not want to hear God, that this wrath came from God. And the wrath, of course, was in the form of the judgment that the Lord brought upon them with or through the Babylonians. In fact, for the northern kingdom, through the Assyrians first, in 722 BC, and then for the southern kingdom. First of all, 606 BC, when Daniel's taken away, that was the first siege of Jerusalem. 597 is when Ezekiel is taken captive. And finally, Jerusalem is destroyed in 587 BC, with Zedekiah as the last king. Verse 13, therefore it is come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. So when they got to that really desperate situation and the Babylon is besieging, or the armies of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar are besieging Jerusalem and they cry out, God says, no, too late. Cross the line, I'm not going to listen now. Judgment's coming. Verse 14, but I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Babylon, of course, Assyria. Egypt, number went down to Egypt. Thus the land was desolate. Again, we're talking about this period of time, this 70-year period, the desolations of Jerusalem. 
started in 587, terminated in 518, counting down, of course, before Christ. The land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. They being, I believe, the Babylonians, those that came in and destroyed everything. So that's the history lesson. This, the, the, the question is, should we carry on with these fasts? Should we carry on doing those things? The Lord's saying, well, think about your motives. Why were you doing those things in the first place? Remember what led to it. It was the attitude of heart. Really, all of this chapter 7 is very much a, a, a request, a plea from God to say, look at your own hearts. Why do you do the things you do? For us, we could spin this around and say, why do we do the things we do as believers? Do we do it? Because we do it. Or do we really do these things for the Lord? When we meet together, is it just because that's what we do on a Sunday? Or is it because we really desire to come into God's presence? Is it because we really desire to be amongst God's people? To be encouraged, to grow? Again, in our most holy faith, as it's put in the New Testament. And so, again, there's no chapter breaks in the original, so we're straight into chapter 8. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. God loved Israel. God had called this nation into being through Abraham and gave promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The kingdom, the, the, the monarchy was established, of course, with Saul, but ultimately with David, the man that God had already chosen, a man who was after God's own heart. God loved and cared for this nation. We've read so many scriptures of how God tended for and looked after his people. God was jealous. And everything that, that came in that tried to pull their hearts away, God hated those things. It says, I was jealous for it with great fury. That's not a kind of a good thing you want to read when the Lord of hosts, the God of heaven's armies, is saying that he's jealous with great fury because of these individuals that have led his people astray. It does make me wonder a little bit about the church today. How many have we got in today's church that set themselves up as leaders, as Vicars, pastors, ministers, give it whatever title badge you want, reverends, who just like the leaders in the nation of Israel at that time were teaching lies, were deceiving the people. And here God is making it very clear that that's not acceptable. He won't tolerate those things. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, we've talked about this already. Uh, We've uh, seen again how God is going to do this incredible thing where Jerusalem will become the center of the earth. And this is, as I said, this is where we really start to see prophetically God's plan and purpose for Israel has still not been fulfilled. So you have two options. One, God lied to Israel and abandoned his promise to them, or these things are still yet to be fulfilled. It's pretty clear which one of those it is. God doesn't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. God reiterates to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, seven times to David, he promises an everlasting kingdom. 
the throne of David. It's promised by Gabriel to Mary regarding the baby that she's carrying, the Messiah. That he will sit on the throne of David. Again, verse 3, thus is the Lord, I am returned unto Zion. You see, again, just to try and keep the context here of what we're looking at, let me just go back to where we started. These people are sent down to Bethel to inquire of the priest. Should we carry on with these feasts and things? Should we do what we're doing? Is there any point keep doing it now that we're back? Why remember all, all those things that we were lamenting? We're back in the land now. It's okay, isn't it? And then the question is, well, why did you do it in the first place? Where is your heart in all of this? And God reminds them of all that had led to that situation. Again, the issue of the heart. People had turned their hearts to stone. And then God is now saying, but yeah, you're back in the land. But I love you. And he says, I am returned unto Zion. That, that time of judgment has now passed. I'm returned and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, of course, there is a big gap time-wise. Because this ultimately will not be fulfilled until the second coming. Because Israel are still in this period of judgment. We've seen already in Leviticus, I believe it's Leviticus 28, four times there, God says, if after you are judged, you still don't return to me with your whole heart, I will multiply your punishment by seven times. Well, we have that incredible prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, this 430 years. And each year represent each, each day of the, the, the thing that Ezekiel acts out represents a year. And then we multi, we take away the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. We multiply the remainder by seven times. And it takes us exactly to 1948 for the people and 1967 for the city. The two sieges of Jerusalem, or the two uh, periods, the, the desolations of Jerusalem, which we talked about already, and the servitude of the nation, those two things. We've looked at that a number of times. And so ultimately, this is looking forward to what will be completed. And then God turning his blessing again upon the nation. You know, we're in the days now, that we are literally in the countdown to the Lord returning and establishing his throne. That period of judgment in many respects, has come to an end. Now there is still a time to come. The time of Jacob's trouble. Israel are not out of the woods yet, as it were. But once they've gone through this time of tribulation, once they've been purged, that will cause them, we were talking earlier about how affliction can make us cry out to God, that will cause Israel to cry out to their Messiah. That's the one thing that's missing from this whole picture. And Israel will cry out. They will be forced to flee from their land. They will hide in the area of Jordan, in Petra. But it's while they are there, as for those, the feasts of Israel prophetically will be played out. The book of Joel is a model of all of those things. Go back and look at our studies in the book of Joel if you want to recap that. But all those, the, the last three feasts in Israel's calendar prophetically are still yet to be fulfilled. The Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpets is those, the trumpets that are blown in Revelation. Israel will flee. That alarm, the war comes, as it were. But then they get to that time of atonement. 
And they recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. We're going to get into, into Zechariah later on to that point where we're told that they will look upon me whom they've pierced and they will mourn. Israel will come back to Jesus. They will realize that Jesus really is, that Yeshua is their Messiah. But we are in that countdown now. So again, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I return unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. God is saying, I am going to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. You, you, you can't allegorize this and make this the church, okay? This is speaking of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. It can't apply in any other way than a literal Jerusalem. And it, it links in with all the other prophecies we've already seen on this subject. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, there shall yet an old man and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. And every man with his staff in his hand for very age is speaking of the millennium. Isaiah makes very similar comments about this. That somebody's going to be a hundred years old and they're going to be considered young. None of you are old. Not in God's economy. And God is speaking of the blessing that's going to come. And every man with his staff in his hand for very age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Now, I don't know if you remember. We still see a little bit of it today. But when I was younger, I I remember going out, and I would play with my friends, and we'd go out on our bikes, and we'd play around the streets. The world seems to have changed a lot in my short lifetime. You know, we're not so keen to let our children go out and play in the streets now. It's not a safe place anymore. But this just speaks of that place where there's safety, there's security. There's not the threats that we perceive around us now. It's speaking of a time when everything is going to be wonderful, when this world will be restored to the way it was when God created it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days... Should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? It's almost as if saying, you know, the, the people may be thinking, well, well, surely that can't happen. It's too incredible. It's often how we perceive miracles. Oh, God, surely that would, that's impossible. I can't see how this could possibly happen. It reminds me of the situation in Kings, of that the time when Israel was under siege, and those lepers go out, and they find that the camp of the Syrians has been deserted, and all this food is there. Well, there was a guy in the city, if you remember, that said, even if God were to open the windows of heaven, then we couldn't have food to fill up. Because they, they, were, they were under siege, and everybody in the city was starving. And this guy says, even if the windows of heaven be open, it couldn't happen. Well, later that day, suddenly there's so much abundance, because this camp had been left... Deserted. All the food was there. Everyone went out and they took whatever they wanted. And the, yeah, the windows of heaven didn't have to open. God had another way of doing it. And it's kind of the statement here. You know, that we may look at things and think, I don't see how God could do that. We, we may be looking even at these prophecies and thinking, but how will God, with all the things going on in the world and the problems with, with the, the aggression of Russia and the problems we see in the Middle East and Iran wanting to destroy Israel, how could we get to this time? Well, God says, should it also be marvelous in my eyes? Did you think I can't do it? Says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, again this phrase repeatedly, the God of heaven's armies. There's no limit to his power. Behold, I will save my people from the east country. Okay, so that's kind of the area of Babylon and Syria. Iran and Iraq today. 
and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. God's going to talk about him bringing his people back. Now, this is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 24. They will gather them, those that are about to perish. It's quoting directly from Isaiah. In Matthew 24, Jesus quotes from two passages in Isaiah about bringing the Jews back to the land of Israel. And they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. That verse is wonderful. That is the conclusion of Scripture right there. See, right at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, created man on the sixth day, places man in the Garden of Eden, and man walked with God. That was how it should have been. God and man dwelling together. Man clothed in the Shekinah glory of God. And then, of course, sin. And that clothing is removed. The man, as a result, ends up having to go and find some other form of clothing, something to cover him. He recognized his nakedness, not nakedness in the fact that he wasn't wearing clothes. It was something far deeper, far spiritual. That presence of God had left him, and he was ashamed. And ultimately, in the book of Revelation, we get to that great statement where we're told that the walk of God and man is going to be resumed, that God will be our God and we will be his people. And here God's saying to Israel that that time is coming. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. All will be brought in through the church. But it's not that the Jews have to join the church because actually the church is grafted into Israel. We all come together in Christ in one. And I will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. This is what is coming. Again, you can't make this apply to the church in any way whatsoever as we think of the church today. Verse 9 goes on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. That you hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. Who's that referring to? With the likes of Haggai. Thus says the Lord, let your hands be strong. That you hear in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid. When was the foundation laid? 518 BC. Haggai was the one that spoke about it. Zechariah comes on to the scene as well. And God's saying, Be strong. Listen to what these prophets are saying. It's going to be built again. For before these days, there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast, neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I set uh, all men, everyone against his neighbor. Speaking of the, the, I believe, the time prior to that, the 19 years leading up to that. It was just that nothing happened. There weren't, people weren't hired to do any work. Everybody was just looking out for their own things. That's why Haggai comes on the scene and says, consider your ways. Verse 11 goes on. But now I will not be unto the residue of this people as in former days. The residue referring to the 50,000 or so that are returned from Babylon. But I will now not be unto the residue of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous. And the vine shall give her fruit. And the ground shall give her increase. And the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Now, in a 
Prophetic fulfillment, those things came to pass, but not in the way it's yet going to. That was just a, a model of what is to happen. There was a time following the rebuilding of the temple and everything else that Israel had moments. But even then, we then get the, the oppression of the likes of Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. There were still problems, just as Daniel had said there would be. These things are still yet looking forward. And it came to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. But we're still in that time that for most of the, the heathen, most of the Gentile nations, they don't see Israel as a blessing, but it's coming. That time is coming. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I repented not. We've obviously covered that already. So again, I've thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear you not. So God is saying, yes, because of your iniquity, because you hardened your hearts, I brought judgment. But now I want to bless you. You know, in our own lives, God sometimes takes us through times of chastening. And we're told in Hebrews that, you know, that's just, it's a good thing because it just shows that God is a good father. But God ultimately wants to bring blessing into our lives. And just as he's saying to Israel here, yes, he had to bring judgment. He had to deal with them. But he wants to bring blessing. So again, so, so I have thought in these days to do well unto you, unto Jerusalem, unto the house of Judah, fear you not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. You see, they were the problems that led to the captivity. And God is saying now it's not going to be like that. It's going to be as I intended it to be. There will be truth. There will be judgment. There will be peace. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oath. For all these things, all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts, again the God of heaven's armies, can't overemphasize the authority with which God is kind of speaking these things, came unto me saying, Thus says, here we go again, the Lord of hosts. The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh. And the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah. And we're going to come to the rest of the sentence in a minute. Let me just tell you those feasts. So we've already talked about the fourth month. But the, the, the seventh month, as I said already, was the feast of Gedaliah, who was the king of Babylon. The tenth month was the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. And then here we find that we've got the, the fourth month, which is also mentioned here. And that was the beginning of the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem in the final siege of the Babylonians. So there were a number of these feasts that they'd had, all commemorating significant moments in the build-up and the destruction of Jerusalem that they had then commemorated during their time in Babylon. And the Lord is saying, so all of these feasts and these, all these fasts and things that you've had to remember... There shall be to the, to the house of Judah joy and gladness. So whereas you once looked at these things as tragic events, you'll look back and you'll see that God was working through these things. And cheerful feasts, therefore, love the truth and peace. Really, God is saying, all those things that you looked at, that you were 
again, almost wallowing in self-pity as you were celebrating these things, you're going to look back and you'll realize that God really was at work. And thus says the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. Okay, read that again. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord. We know the account of the Queen of Sheba. When she came up to see Solomon and she asked lots of hard questions because she'd heard of his splendor and wealth and fame and everything else, and she gets there and she is just overwhelmed with the way that God had blessed him. Well, that's, that's not even the scratching the surface of what's coming. Because one greater than Solomon is coming. And one greater than Solomon is going to sit on the throne of David. And he's going to rule over the whole earth. And nations are going to want to come up and see Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They're going to seek. Notice this again. We've had this all the way through. They are going to come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. This isn't just God in the heavens. This is now the Messiah ruling and reigning on the earth. Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, ruling on the earth in Jerusalem. Yea, many people, a strong nation shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations even shall, shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, can't make this the church in any way, of a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. I haven't done it, and I probably would be arrested for doing it, but I've told you already, where I'm working now, there's a number of Jews in the area, and I see them walking, and I see some of them in their very traditional Jewish clothing. And others, some people just the skull cap on, and you just clearly know they're Jewish. So often, I just want to just grab hold of one, and I, and I know I, I I shouldn't, and I won't, and I, you know I would probably be arrested for doing it. We'll we'll see when we look in Romans next week that the world is being blessed during this time that Israel are cast aside. And the question or the statement that's put forward, if the world is blessed now, how much more when Israel come back to that place of recognizing Jesus as their Messiah? And this incredible verse, the world, rather than being anti-Semitic, is going to be overwhelmingly pro-Semitic. It will be a privilege to know a Jew and being able to say to you, can we come with you? Can we come to Jerusalem? Can we come and see your Messiah? For we have heard that God is with you. You know, the privilege for us is that we'll be there too. Because during the millennial reign, we will come back with Jesus at the second coming, and we are told that we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. How that's going to work, I don't know. Don't ask me, I don't know. But I know it's going to happen. And I know it's going to be incredible. We will be not just a part of the, the groom's family. We will be the bride. 
Again, it just blows my mind to think of all that God is going to do. Again, people throughout the whole earth are going to come to that place finally of realizing that God is with the Jews. Next week, as I say, we're going to look into Romans 9, 10, 11. We won't do the verse-by-verse study of the whole thing. I want to just pick out some key elements from that. And, of course, the question really is, has God finished with Israel? The answer is no. So that doesn't mean you can have a week off. That means you've still got to come because there's a lot of good things you'll, you'll learn from that. But I just really want to address this question and join these things together. And that brings us in Zechariah to a convenient place because we then go into three chapters that really all look forward to the first coming of the Messiah. That seemingly come later in Zechariah's ministry, and then it's followed by the closing three chapters that look forward to the second coming. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity this morning to see these things. And Lord, what a reminder it is to look at our own hearts, to examine why we do the things we do. Lord, what is our motivation? Is it you? It needs to be. We pray, Lord, you would make it. Lord, give us a zeal and a hunger and an appetite for everything that is holy and godly and true and just and righteous. Lord, may we come to church not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but simply because we want to be with you and with your people, that we want to be able to encourage each other, that we want to be able to enjoy this walk that we can enjoy right now. Oh, Lord, ultimately, we know in eternity that you will walk with your people and your people will walk with you. That There is that day coming when Israel, once again, will call you their God and you will call them your people. But today, Lord... As part of the body of Christ, we have that privilege of walking with you, walking in the way, walking with your spirit. Oh, Lord, what a privilege we have. May we take hold of that and every day enjoy stepping out, whatever each day may bring, knowing that you are with us and that we can walk with you. We thank you for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.